Hi, I'm Dr. Susie Green, founder and CEO of the Positivity Institute, a positively deviant organisation dedicated to creating a flourishing world. I'd like to take the opportunity today in our last podcast episode of the series to thank you for listening to the Positivity Prescription Podcast Series 1. If you want to learn more about my 6M model of flourishing and can't wait for Podcast Series 2 in 2021, grab a copy of my book from our website or sign up to be part of the class of 2021 in our digital course of the same name. So join me now as I speak with our final guest in the series as we continue to learn from expert experiences and insights together with practical strategies to proactively improve your mental health and well-being. Today I'm speaking with Joseph Chiroki. Joseph is Professor at the Institute for Positive Psychology and Education at the Australian Catholic University. He's published over 140 scientific journal articles and many books, including the best-selling Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life for Teens, and the widely acclaimed Weight Escape and Mindfulness, Acceptance and Positive Psychology, The Seven Foundations of Wellbeing. His newest book will be released in September 2020. It's called Your Life, Your Way, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Skills to Help Teens Manage Emotions and Build Resilience. Joseph has been honoured with over $4 million in research funding. His work has been discussed on television, in magazines, newspaper articles and radio. So welcome, Joseph. Thanks so much for joining us today. And um, before we get into the interview, I wanted to give the audience a little bit of background. I've known Joseph for quite a long time. In fact, Joseph was a lecturer of mine when I was doing my doctorate in clinical psychology. And uh, actually, Joseph, yesterday I was uh, talking to Aaron Jarden around mood and I was commenting that in my training, which is quite a while ago now, many moons, that all of the lectures were on fear, anger, shame, disgust and guilt. And we didn't really have many lectures on uh, positive positive emotions and yeah. I still recall a lecture yeah. that, that you gave and I think we were talking about unhappy couples but you were also talking about happy couples which was quite inspiring although I think yeah. I was quite cynical at the time Joseph and I said I don't know any <laughs> happy couples. <laughs> oh dear. So do you think dear. things are changing? Just generally I don't think well-being has increased much. We've pretty much been staying the same in terms of levels of both positive affect and negative affect. So I mean, I think this is one of the things we scientists have to get better at is improving how we help people to thrive. And so, yeah, that's still a big task ahead of us. Absolutely. And again, I guess drawing some parallels to the, in my training in those early days, as you would know, it was very heavily focused on cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, and, and there's been such a shift, um, particularly into ACT acceptance commitment therapy, which is one of your areas of expertise. But one of the reasons that I really wanted to have you speak on the topic of mindset, Joseph, is because I knew you had such a broad understanding, I guess, of mindset. But tell me what mindset actually means to you. Well, I guess it's often associated with growth mindset and fixed mindset. So Carol Dweck's notion that, do you think you're the sort of person who's kind of fixed by their traits? You know, so if you're lazy, then you're just doomed to be lazy for the rest of your life. Or do you think you can grow and change in fundamental ways? For example, can you improve your intelligence? Can you change your personality if you want to? And so I think of it in those traditional uh, terms, but I guess the way we intervene is a little bit novel. 
it's a mindfulness-based approach in acceptance and commitment therapy that we use to promote a growth mindset. So just to give some background, you were talking about CBT yeah. being the dominant approach. And when we you were doing training back then, um, it wasn't that long ago, I don't think. <laughs> Ten years, maybe? Maybe, maybe, maybe longer. longer. We won't reveal our age. <laughs> mindfulness was considered to be a still a strange idea associated with crystals and weird stuff. And wasn't yet mainstream. Now it is mainstream. There's a journal called Mindfulness, which is now has a very is very influential. And most forms of CBT do mindfulness-based stuff now. So this has been a major shift, a major revolution in the last decade, and especially made its way into obviously positive psychology. Uh, mindfulness is a is a much more, I guess positive approach because it means being curious in the present moment and connecting with the things that are valuable in your day-to-day life. That's quite a a powerful, and I noticed in your new book, you've got a a whole chapter on it, so that's cool. Absolutely. And just for, I guess, people that might not be familiar with CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, would you mind giving a brief description of how of what CBT is and how it is different to ACT? Sure. Well, let's go back to mindset, right? So, It's not great to have a fixed mindset because what it means is you don't think you can improve and change. And the world is constantly changing. I mean, COVID has changed everything. We need to change. So this is a, it's, it's detrimental to personal development and growth. So we could have a couple of approaches to improving your mindset. So what we want to get is people recognizing that however they define themselves now, that doesn't define themselves for the rest of their lives, right? So you may think, oh, I've I've flunked high school, for example. And if I just assumed, well, I'm stupid, then I would have never gone to university. Um, There's a lot of ways we think we're fixed. Those obvious ways, like I've always had bad relationships, so I'm bad at relationships. So that's a fixed mindset, which would lead you to not pursue love anymore because you think it's hopeless because there's something in you that stops it. But of course, with love, every single relationship before you find your soulmate is often a bad relationship or a breakup. Yes. You know, so it's just the nature of love that that's going to happen. So what we want people to be able to do is be able to have those difficult feelings about themselves and self-doubt and all that stuff, but also still see that they can grow. So how do we do this? So that's really the question you're getting at, Susie. How do we do this? And so I'm going to focus on a mindfulness approach today. But if you did it with a CBT approach, probably – and these are effective approaches too. So if somebody comes in and says, look, I'm a drunk and and I've always been a drunk and I've always been a bad father and I'm never going to change. This is a fixed mindset, right? And we want to get to more growth mindset here because if that's true, then you're not going to be able to help the person. So – A CBT approach might be to present evidence against this idea that we're fixed. So they might say, well, look, when we do something new, like mindfulness, our brain actually changes. The neurons become restructured. There's even evidence that the expression of our genes change if we change our behavior. So, for example, if if you start exercising, the actual way that your genes work changes. So these are deep changes, changes which they didn't used to think could be made. If you learn some new skill, your brain will change, neurons will change, be restructured, and there's even evidence that you can increase the amount of white matter in your brain through mindfulness. So that's a CBT approach I'm using right now. Right this second, I'm saying you can change and here is the evidence. And I think that's a really 
valuable approach, Susie. I, I don't see CBT and ACT as being in opposition necessarily. Actually, the evidence is pretty good for those kinds of interventions and growth mindsets. So the most typical intervention, they're really brief, is to do something like just what I did, which is to say, look, the brain changes, the brain grows. Here's an article on this subject and just showing people, oh, I can actually change in such fundamental ways. And that actually does work. Um, it promotes growth mindset and positive outcomes. So we did a review recently and, and the brief interventions as well. And I, although I did see in the last 12 to 18 months some critiques of Dweck's work in terms of the effect sizes, I yeah. think were not as strong as what... Um, but when I looked at the interventions, and again, I'm not entirely sure it was the, the specifics, but they didn't seem to be quite rigorous interventions to me. But I started to think around, I mean, as a cognitive behavioural therapist in my early career, that for me, that was absolutely, as you said, about helping people develop a growth mindset. But I haven't actually seen any linkages between the discussions around Dweck's fixed and growth mindset and CBT. Have you seen any th connections there? Or I think CBTers do it implicitly. I think the Dweck stuff has made its way into education. And so that's why you might not see what is considered clinically rigorous trials, because it'll be like somebody makes up an intuitive article about neurons being able to develop and grow. And that's what they, they put into place. So you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think that it's not always rigorous. I, I remember, though, that there were consistent small effects, maybe. I, I can't quite remember the review, but there were definitely beneficial effects there. But again, this is a moving feast. Science is changing all the time and improving how we do these things. And we're learning what works and what doesn't work. So yeah, I, I think in clinical psych people are implicitly doing it maybe, but not calling it growth mindset. There might have been a bit of reaction against it because it became commercial and people kind of became resentful of the feeling of it being like a trademark thing. But I don't think we should get caught up in that. It's too important to get caught up in that. I think so too, because I have also seen some schools sort of abandon it because they've heard, oh, there's no um, evidence that the interventions work when, in fact, I think, well, actually, we have got quite a bit of research that's been around for a long time to show that you can develop more of, of growth mindset, I guess, through interventions like Absolutely. Yeah, CBT. I could send it to you, but I'm sure I've just laid eyes on a meta-analysis showing that there was a beneficial effect. I mean, that's an analysis that reviews lots and lots and lots of these studies, and I, I think that there is a beneficial effect. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't think it's quite time to throw it out. No, and I guess the other experience I've had is that people like the labels of it, which I guess can be problematic too in terms of just labeling someone as a fixed or a growth mindset. And I think I know I learned French a few years, attempted to learn French a few years ago. And the ants, the automatic negative thoughts came quick and so many of them, proliferation of ants actually. And here I am yeah. thinking I'm a growth mindset person. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the criticisms of it from the more CBT perspective is it almost encourages people to keep trying no matter what. And maybe there is a time to say, you know, maybe I can't improve on this, you know, like there is a time for me to give up my National Basketball Association dreams. I'm not going to be a professional <laughs> basketball player. There's only so much I can improve on my jump shot. So there are some instances where yeah, it may not be the best way to intervene, like convincing everybody that they can be a genius at math. I don't know. That's where it gets complicated. Yeah. But the way I go is, is more of a mindfulness-based approach. And so the two 
really key things for me are mindfulness and values. So when we talk about your sense of self, like so Susie, you have a fear of French. <laughs> and I have to say, I, I nearly flunked French in, in university. There's so many silent letters. It's an extremely hard language to pick. Challenging. I mean, the only thing harder would be Mandarin, really, I reckon. So if I was working with you, if that was something that was really important to you, then the first thing we would do is kind of start to notice the self-evaluations that are showing up for you that are kind of fixed and rigid, like I suck at languages, I'm no good at this, I'm too old, whatever shows up for you. Yes. So do those kinds of things show up? Oh, yeah, absolutely. When you think about <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so the, the first step is to just start to notice, because this fixed mindset, it's as if yourself is a fixed thing, like I am Susie, I am Joseph, I am a dad, I am this... It feels like it's solid granite, right? But if you start to take a mindfulness-based approach, what you notice is, I am bad at this, is just a passing evaluation. You start to notice that you, there's no concrete self, but there's something called selfing, which is a verb, which is your mind constantly evaluating yourself. Oh, I'm no good at this. I'm bad at this. I better not embarrass myself. I'm too old. You know, you just notice your mind with a mindfulness-based approach selfing all the time. And so self no longer becomes a fixed thing. You experience it mindfully as a thing that is changing like a river or like weather. And sometimes your your selfing is awesome. It's like, I'm awesome. Everybody loves me. You know, you publish, you see your book out like, I'm a super genius. I'm going to be a bestseller. You know, your selfing is awesome then, but it's just always selfing. It's always going on. And you know, in a few weeks, it might be like, you know, oh, God, here I am trying French again. Why do I even try? So, the mindfulness part helps us to notice that the self is really just a transitory behavior, just a, the act of saying, I am, and then putting some label. And we do this constantly. Our mind is just automatically going, I am, I am, I am, I am this, I am that, I'm a woman, I'm a man. You know, and that's constantly kind of limiting, can be limiting. Sometimes it can be useful. So, this is the flexibility part. So, I'm not good enough to play professional basketball is a very useful form of selfing. So, in that instance, I might listen to it. And in that sense, I, you would say I have a fixed mindset. Oh, no, that's terrible. Except what makes it more flexible is that I now I'm, I'm looking at that selfing behavior I am not good enough to play basketball in relation to my values and in connection with the real world. So what I'm really asking is, is this selfing behavior useful for me? Yeah. And sometimes those more fixed ideas about yourself could be useful, such as, you know, you'll never change that person. Well, that may or may not be true, but it may be costing you so much to try and change them that maybe it's a useful thing to listen to that for now. Do you see what I mean? It's just a flexible thing. Absolutely. So it's the noticing of the selfing behavior, I am not good enough, and being aware of your value. When I get on to that not good enough thought, where does it take me? Does it make me work harder, which is awesome? Then yeah, hell yeah. That's not fixed mindset. That's brilliant. Or does it make me shut down and not try? Then we're in fixed mindset. And so we need to just kind of, instead of listening to that, if we're mindfully aware of I'm not good enough, we can start to disengage from that thought if we're aware of it. 
Absolutely. In traditional, I guess, CBT, and, you know, I worked with hundreds of clients over the years, asking them to catch their ants, you know, to be able to track their automatic, you know, negative thoughts over time. And I guess when I look back, there was a level of mindfulness, because I always recall clients used to come back and say, Susie, oh my goodness, I'm having more ants than ever. And I'd say to them, no, it's not that you're having more, it's that you're aware of them now. But are you saying like with this move into, I guess, mindfulness? based cognitive therapy that it's a much more explicit use of mindfulness to be aware of those thoughts yeah so you you have the move now that if those negative thoughts show up like i will always suck at this yeah you now have the move of not trying to change it so a mindfulness approach would be here's your automatic negative thought let's just Watch it. Let's just watch it crawl around the brain and, you know, let's watch the ant and what it does. And and now, oh, now it's gone. Oh, now it's come back. So it's really more of a curious viewing of those automatic negative thoughts. And when you do that, even though it doesn't seem like you're doing anything, what you've actually done is you've created this space between the ant and you. Yes. Right? There's a you that's observing the ant. So that little bit of mindful space gives you choice. So it's fundamentally about that, creating that space. And so what's different is normally in CBT, you would then maybe, you might challenge the ant and that's perfectly fine, but you have an extra move, which is, let's not even challenge it. Okay, so you, you'll you never agree with me, no matter how much I argue that I, I think you're a worthwhile person, Yes. You know, but you have clients, have you ever had a client that just pushes back and says, no, I'm not, I've done this, this, and this, and here's all the evidence that I'm, I'm a lousy person, I'm a terrible mom. I'm, like, it's so amazing that humans will actually argue with you when you're trying to say something nice to them. Yes. So if you find yourself getting stuck with somebody like that, then a natural move would be to kind of stop arguing and just sit next to them with curiosity and compassion and say, well, let's watch what your mind does is doing here. If you believe this, what's going to happen? And, you know, you're not even talking about the true or falseness of it. You're just curiously observing. And notice how by being an observer and saying, look, there's a you. So it's not that I am worthless. It's that I'm having the thought I'm worthless, right? It's just a single step where there's an observer and there's an ant or an automatic negative thought. And once you get to that point, then growth mindset is just a step away because what you start to realize is, wait a minute, I'm not good enough as a thought, but I'm noticing it. So how could I be that thought? They do this experientially. This sounds very intellectual, but experientially you get, wow, I'm, I'm actually the observer. I'm actually the holder of these thoughts. I'm, I'm not the same as these thoughts because sometimes I have negative ones, sometimes I have positive ones. I'm just like, you know, to use Kabat-Zinn's metaphor, I'm like the sky And my thoughts are like the weather that are coming and going, sometimes nice, sometimes not nice, but I hold it all. And you see, when you identify with that observer self, you're more able to change and grow because you're no longer, it's no longer a threat. Like if you say, you know, I'm a bad father, if I have that belief because I've I've had a past of being a bad father, let's say, I'm not saying I'm a bad father, but then I will defend that with you. Because I have so much evidence of it. That's right. And I'll resist you telling me otherwise because I feel like you're threatening my sense of self. Because if I'm not a bad father, then I could have been a good father and it just would destroy me. But if you identify with the observer self, then challenges to that don't feel as threatening because it's just like, oh, well, that's just stuff that's passing, you know. Yeah, it can be true. Maybe it's not true. I don't know. But I'm I'm the one who holds it all. So it's okay for it to be there. You see what I mean? So it. The growth mindset comes from letting go of the attachment to the 
self-concepts. I love it. So how important is a mindfulness practice to, I guess, become more skilled at this? Because it, it sounds, this has always been the challenge. I've always said, you know, it sounds so easy, but it, these are actually quite you know, sophisticated skills. It takes practice to get, and even now, you know, for somebody like yeah. myself and yourself, we've been doing it for years and it's still challenging at times to do it. So the mindfulness practice helps. Yeah, look, I think like for years I, I didn't have a practice except that every moment is a chance to practice, right? So you could be having a conversation with a friend and that's a chance to bring yourself into the present moment and practice being mindful playing sport or eating. Every ordinary moment is a chance to practice. But recently, I've started a more deliberate practice, maybe about just two months ago, and I've been pretty steady on it. It's a stretching practice. But the key mindfulness element is to notice, this is all I do. I just notice when I've gone away, you know, and I'm, I'm worrying about something or I'm thinking about something else. And I gently bring myself back and I notice that, okay, I went away to worrying about work. So that's my attachment work. I'm going to let it go and come back to the stretching. Okay, I started thinking about what time I'm going to get my daughter up for school. Okay, I'm going to let that go, come back. So the, the main practice, it, you're right, it's, it's not sophisticated, but it's tricky. It's just noticing when you've left and when you're in your head, ruminating, worrying, all that. For me, that practice has been really valuable and it's been a more structured 30-minute practice a day. But having said that, I think it could be done anytime. Like if somebody's a jogger, they could do it while jogging. Like they could have that practice of, okay, for 10 minutes, I'm going to just be totally in the present moment, seeing, smelling, hearing my environment. And if I get distracted, I'm going to gently bring myself back. I'm going to notice what pulled me away. I'm going to notice that temptation or what I call attachment. I'm going to say there is an attachment. I really you know, want that. And I'm going to bring myself back and be in this moment. So it doesn't have to be painful sitting silently by yourself. Every, every moment gives you a chance to practice that returning. That's one type of mindfulness, that noticing when you've left and return. That was really important to me because I was, you know, COVID's very stressful. The whole environmental change, it's all very stressful to me. And I'm, I'm ruminating, worrying a lot. So I, I'm starting to catch myself more. And, you know, it's been a very difficult year for all of us. And, you know, a lot of us would rather just make this year finish and go away and go to the next year, you know? And, you know, I saw a funny cartoon with Back to the Future and they were getting ready to travel back to the future in their car. This was 1980s. They said, whatever you do, don't set it for 2020, <laughs> you know? But that, that's interesting, isn't it? So it is a stressful, anxious time and we, we're all trying to make it go away. And, but actually, if you look at the moments of our day-to-day -day life right now, in this year of pandemic, there's a lot of really beautiful moments. There's a lot of moments of love, of caring, of friendship, of joy, of delicious food and nice swims. And, you know, it's it's still there. Absolutely. So I guess in my book, I have got separate chapters on mindset and mindfulness. And we had the wonderful Felicia Huppert, who you work with at ACU. But really, they're so interconnected, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. I think, well, this way of doing it, it's very connected because it's about kind of getting free of the rigid mindset, the fixed mindset. And our sense of self so fixes us. We don't even know it's there. Just to give you a personal experience of some years ago, you know, I hit 45 and I'm 52 now. I'll just out, out myself. Uh, <laughs> Very bright. I should have just subtracted 10 and pretended to be younger. But anyway, I was kind of out of shape, middle-aged guy, you know, and I wanted to do something about it. And I tried lots of things. But one of the things I started doing was martial arts. Yes. And 
this is a dojo where um, it's very family-friendly and kid-friendly, so people are doing ridiculously hard things that old people usually can't do, you know, somersaults, cartwheels, things like that. Yeah. And this is where your sense of self, you don't even know it's there. It's like for me to do a cartwheel in front of kids and adults was one of the hardest things I had to do psychologically because mm. adults don't do things like that. Mm. It's uncool or you might look embarrassed. And so one of the senses of self, like as you get older, is you don't want to look like a fool. You don't want to do new things or take risks because you're supposed to be the expert at everything. <laughs> That's right. So that was just a little example, starting to do some of these younger things that younger people do without even thinking about it. But for an adult to learn how to do a cartwheel, mm. like something as simple as that just shows you how strong the sense of self drives us you know it's like oh my god old people don't do this look at what our mind is telling me holy cow and then that absolutely can become a self-fulfilling prophecy too can't it because we then think well there's no point because that was, was happening with, with me with french like it's so much harder to learn at an older age what are you thinking and then it can actually prevent your engagement yeah. um, with the learning absolutely and the sense of older age has changed dramatically i mean 52 used to be very old but yeah. now it's young. You, you, know, you see people <laughs> achieving really amazing things as they get older, you know, and all the professional sports, a lot of athletes are older than they ever were and, and are still playing, you know, Federer's creeping towards 40 and he's still at the top of his game, you know, so a lot of those were just fixed beliefs, fixed mindset. You see this too, if you look at even shows from the 80s, you know, and, how, and the way that men and women thought about themselves and the way they thought about what was acceptable. It's really staggering to go back and watch your favorite 80s movies and be like, oh my gosh, that's very rapey. Oh my gosh. A lot of the movies just depicting females as just being in the background to support the male. What's the movie that where I really liked it at the time? You you can't stand the truth. What was that Jack Nicholson movie? Oh, uh, is that a few angry uh, men? Oh, I can't remember, but I never saw it before, but now in a more modern Me Too world where Female and male gender roles are now more fluid, and we start to realize these were just assumptions. You watch that movie, it's like Tom Cruise. Demi Moore is just hero-worshipping Tom Cruise, the main lawyer, the whole time. You never ask why Demi Moore isn't leading the case or yeah. doing the arguing. You're like, it didn't even occur to you in the 80s, but here it's like, this guy's an idiot. Like In the movie, he kind of comes around in the end, but he acts like an idiot a good portion of the time. And I don't know why Demi Moore wouldn't have just stepped up and, and done the case. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it didn't even, at that time, it's like, no, the man is the hero of the story and the woman, you know, hardly. And, and so those gender roles were so hidden and now they're changing and men and women realize they can be different. Men can care for the kids without being a wimp and women can be tough and, and career successful without somehow being a bitch. So that's brilliant. But those fixed mindsets were always there in the background, kind of silently structuring how we see the universe. So I guess what you're saying is it now, I guess, even more than ever, our mindsets are really being challenged, aren't they, around what our beliefs are. And this, I think, fits into some of Professor Ellen Langer's work around her conceptualization of mindset. And that we, again, it requires the mindfulness to hmm, be curious about, really, that's an, a way of thinking that I've had, but is it the most helpful yeah. way or the, the way yeah. of the person that I want to be or the developing, you know, is that the mindset of the person I'm becoming um, that I want? Yeah, exactly. Especially in the time of COVID. I couldn't agree more. And, and look, I could talk to you all day, but unfortunately, we, we're we coming towards the end of uh, the podcast. I did want to just pick up on, because I forgot to mention it at the beginning, that uh, one of your flourishing facts is that, um, or a fun fact, if you like, that you do actually have a black belt in Hakido. So was is that just yeah. recent, is it? 
Uh, it's been a couple of years now, but it was one of those things not everybody knows, but it was definitely something that required a growth mindset because as I said, I was inflexible and out of shape. And <laughs> I've improved a lot. So I've, I've changed a lot. And I think that's the main takeaway message is that people massively underestimate how much they can change. And again, that mindfulness of your mindset and the impact that it can have on your capacity to change and be psychologically flexible, which is so needed um, in this current circumstance. Yeah, exactly. Just wrapping up, if there is, I mean, you have so many books and we're going to post them in the Facebook group, but what book or podcast, is there one that you would recommend for people that want to learn a little bit more around mindset or perhaps the mindfulness-based approaches or act-based approaches? Well, I'm going to recommend my own books. (laughs) We (laughs) have a new book coming out called, um, uh, what can I say? Your Life, Your Way, which is for young people, but it has a lot of this growth mindset stuff in it. So even if you're an adult, you can kind of see how this might happen, how you might improve your growth mindset. Fabulous. I can't wait. We'll we'll again put that up on the Facebook page. But we've got a scenario right now. We've certainly heard this in our workshops in the corporate sector where the adults attending our workshops are telling us that it's their children that are coming home and teaching them these mindset skills. So uh, we've got a bit of a gap to fill, haven't we, in our community? Definitely. There's a lot of work for us to do, Susie. There's no shortage of work. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much much, Joseph, for sharing your knowledge and experience. It is such a huge topic and we've really only scratched the surface today, but best uh, wishes for your research and we'll certainly keep people posted on the book that's coming out. Congratulations on that. Thank you, Susie. And congratulations on your book. It's excellent. Well, that was fun. Thanks very much for listening to the Positivity Prescription Podcast Series 1. If you'd like to learn more about my 6M model of flourishing, don't forget to grab a copy of my book, The Positivity Prescription, and consider signing up to join the class of 2021 for the Positivity Prescription digital course. See you next series, and remember, life's too short to languish.